Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I've got a special guest on the show. It's also been a while since I've had a show. Uh, a couple of life updates. I moved out to Vancouver Island, British Columbia at the end of August. And a lot of things go along with making a move. There's a lot that has to happen just to settle into a place. Sorting things out with the banks, sorting things out with healthcare... It's more than just the physical move itself. It is beautiful out here, though. I'm recording this after spending the day outside at East Souk Regional Park. It's pretty much the southernmost tip of Vancouver Island. And you look out across the ocean, and there's the Olympic Mountains in Washington right there. I have not grown tired of that yet. Anyway, there are more episodes on the way. I haven't disappeared. And we're starting with this one, an important one. A man by the name of Greg Gilhooly. Greg is the author of I Am Nobody, Confronting the Sexually Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life, a heavy title. Greg grew up in Winnipeg playing hockey where he met Graham James, perhaps the most famous sexual predator in Canadian sports. James is the same man who would later admit to abusing NHLers Thurin Fleury and Sheldon Kennedy, along with Fleury's cousin Todd Holt. What happens after the worst imaginable comes true? How do you pick up and carry on? Greg lived it, and now he's here on the other side to talk about getting through. Here's his story. Greg, uh, I want to commend you, first of all, uh, for the courage and, and candor that, uh, that it took to, to write this book. It's raw, it's honest. I know it hit me a number of times as I read it. Just how long had you been wrestling with the question of whether to write this or not? Well, I guess in terms of trying to figure out whether or not to write a book, it had always been in the back of my mind ever since it had happened, going right back to when I was a teenager. Mm. But, you know, decades intervened and uh, I wasn't dealing with what happened at all. And so the, 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 the notion of sitting down and actually writing about it was was far from mind if you know what i mean i thought about it when it was happening Mm -hmm. i didn't think about it again for decades Mm -hmm. and then i was approached after uh, roy mcgregor and the globe and mail published my uh, victim impact statement Uh, and uh, that that started the process and uh, i i wasn't of a mind to jump right in it took a long time to figure out whether or not to do it yeah you know i've been thinking a lot about the question of just how much we are bound by our past, how much of a hold it has on us. And your book, to me, is really asking the same questions. You know, within the first few pages, you're talking about the, the push and pull of wanting to go home, but home being a difficult place to be. Uh, so let's start there. Tell me about growing up in Winnipeg and how that shapes a person, how that shaped you. Well, I was a, an average kid, I guess, growing up uh, in suburban Winnipeg and, until I, I crossed paths with Graham. I had a, you know, a decent childhood. We didn't have a particularly warm home, but I don't think my home was very different from from many. And I certainly had things no, not nearly as bad as as many when when I was growing up. I loved sports and I loved school. I excelled at school. I, I skipped a grade, could have skipped more. Uh, excelled at hockey. Uh, was advanced uh, to play with older boys, and I, I was just I was just a, a, a kid, the, the kind of kid you see playing on the street at night, and the kind of kid who you know seemed to have it all. Right. 
a kid, I, I guess, maybe notable in this respect that it could have been anyone for that regard. Uh, what what ended up happening to you could have happened to just about anybody else. Well, I, I think that's right. And, and for, when I look back at my life, I guess the thing that stands out is I'm six foot seven now. So I was always a tall, strong, athletic child. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, you know, excelling at school. And and so if it could happen to the golden child, and I know it sounds gross talking about myself in those terms, <laughs> you know, from from all outwardly, uh, uh, all outward uh, appearances were that I was a kid enjoying success after success after success. And so, yeah, it, it, if it could happen to me, it could happen to anybody. You mentioned being a big kid uh, early on in your hockey career. You were the big kid that made other parents uncomfortable. You know, when kids are kind of just getting used to what their bodies could do, and and uh, when some kids are much bigger than a smaller kid at the same age, uh, how did you end up in goalie pads then? Well, I, it's interesting. My my dad played hockey. I come from a long line of of hockey players and football players. And I was bigger than the rest of the kids. And I'd been introduced to the game at a relatively young age. And I was, to be blunt, you know, much better than most of my peers. Mm-hmm. And so I'm skating around and it's outdoor hockey. I'm, I'm 54. So we're talking about the, you know, late 60s, early 70s. And uh, I guess I'm, I'm body checking kids and knocking them around. And it's, it, 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 it was, Something that I didn't understand, but it, it, the story's been told to me that, that I, I was standing out amongst my peers. And so I guess one one cold winter day in Winnipeg, we're playing outside, and I, I knocked a kid over. And as I'm skating off the ice, his mom spat on me. Mm-hmm. And my, my dad is a, a, a big man. He was a big man. He, he's no longer with us. My, but he, he's... The, the type he was the type who who shied away from controversy of any sort and so rather than cause a big scene or, or stink about it he suggested to me that maybe I, I could play in, in goal and when when you're a young kid the goal equipment was fascinating and and it was exciting to, to put it on and so I, I became a goalie just like that and yeah. because a, a, an adult spat on me it's only now when I look back on it that it, it seems a little off that that my dad and others didn't stand up for my right to play whatever position I, I wanted to play. You know, now, nowadays there'd be lawsuits. This would be on local news TV. There'd be an uproar, all, all of that type of stuff. Back then, it was just easy for me to be a goalie. And uh, because I could skate, you know, the, the people like to think that they put, you know, the, the slow fat kid in, in, in net because he can't skate. Well, back then that that's in large part what they did, but because I was an athletic, very good skating hockey player, I had an incredible advantage and, you know, kids like what they they're good at and I was good at it. And so it just stuck. What was the sport to you as a kid? Was it about climbing the ranks as high as possible or was it about playing with your friends? Probably a combination of things. Mm-hmm. I loved hockey. Ho- I mean, hockey was just flat out fun to, to play. Uh, I was good at it. And so I, I liked being good at something. And to the extent that I had peers, I was already separated from my, my close friends in school because I'd been skipped ahead mm-hmm. or, or, or in hockey, I'd been skipped ahead of my peers, the, the, the ones I went to school with. And, and then the ones I went to school with, I, I lost because they skipped me ahead in school. So I, I was, I was removed from my peers very, very early on. I, I'm sure I had the guys on the hockey team and, and I had friends in school, but my close peer groups evaporated. Was hockey something I thought I was going to become a professional? Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, I always 
wanted to become a, a, a scholar athlete. I was uh, eight years old when Ken Dryden led the Canadians to the Stanley Cup, or it just turned nine. And so the, the, the notion of a tall goalie who'd gone to an Ivy League school playing professional sports mm-hmm. was there. But my, my goal was more on the, the academic side of things than the athletic side of things. I didn't dream of playing in the NHL. Yeah. I, I did dream of, of being a, a lawyer. So uh, a kid being separated from his, his closest friends by, by grades and also by you know, jumping ahead in, in teams, that gives a, a bit of a picture of who you were when you met Graham James. Now, what did his name mean to you then? Well, Graham James was viewed as a hockey god in Winnipeg hockey circles. When I met Graham, he was, we didn't have AAA hockey in, in Winnipeg. We had what was called a tiered level of hockey, but but relative to the way the game is played, it, it's, it was at the AAA level. So the highest level of minor hockey, Graham was a coach of uh, the, the midget 16-year-old uh, AAA Canadians uh, in, in my area. Mm-hmm. And that's that's sort of the the ultimate in minor hockey, uh, age group hockey. He was in the late seventies a proponent of fast hockey. He thought that uh, the NHL had taken a wrong turn. Graham was uh, uh, adopting and accepting of uh, European uh, hockey methods. He 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 was seen as a revolutionary within the the local hockey community. Mm-hmm. He was seen as a, an esteemed god, and he was someone you wanted to impress. He was a, a, a scout for junior hockey teams, so if you were growing up in Winnipeg and wanted to play professionally, the, the next rung was the Western Hockey League, and he, he was your gatekeeper to, to that life. Yeah. So he, he, he was a larger-than-life figure. So you are here you are, a kid, uh, and you can see he's a, he's a coach a few years ahead of you uh, in age groups. And yep. and somewhere along the lines, he takes an interest in you, uh, and and tells you that you might have some promise. It's hard to see in the moment, but you do a good job in the book of examining this in in retrospect. The ways in which an abuser looks to find an entry point. Tell me a bit about how that took place in your case. How your relationship with him developed over time. The things that you can recognize now. Well, it's interesting. I I met Graham by happenstance. I. I didn't have direct contact with Graham. As you mentioned, he was coaching boys older than I was. Uh, he helped out a friend of his who happened to be coaching a team that we played against, my team played against, in the Midwest Regional AAA uh, Championships in Minneapolis. And so coming off the ice after losing to the team he had been helping, we viewed Graham as a traitor. And Graham had left the St. James Canadians Hockey Association, our, our part of the city. Winnipeg was divided into to five regions. Yep. He left our area to go help a, a different part of the city uh, on a volunteer basis for a weekend. And so, boys being boys, we saw him as a traitor. And walking off the ice after the team that he had helped beat us, I, the last person in the world who would have yelled at an adult at that time, <laughs> called him out on it. I called him a, called him a traitor. Uh-huh. And I got to the dressing room and I immediately regretted what I had, I had done because here was this larger than life figure in the hockey world and I had just yelled at him and I'd yelled at an adult and I'd been disrespectful and I felt sick. Mm-hmm. And I got my stuff off and I made a point of going over and on the way out of the arena apologizing to him and he had a, 
a nice demeanor about him. It wasn't what I expected. He made me feel fine about what I'd said. He told me he would have done the same thing in the same circumstances if, if he'd been in my shoes. And then he went on a bit about my future in the game and, and what he thought of me. And he clearly knew a lot about me. And uh, he said that when we get back to Winnipeg, we should get together. And that that's how I, I crossed paths with Graham for the first time. And that's how, uh, how it started. Now, you make plans to meet and and one of the kind of recurring themes as as he's developing kind of this relationship as being a I don't know if it's quite a goalie whisperer but somebody who's who's telling you that he's got an eye out for your future is uh is still saying well you can't really tell people about this because I I don't want to interfere with your current coaches or something to that effect can you can you talk a bit more about that right from the get-go secrecy was of, of paramount importance to Graham he made it clear that even from our first conversation in Minneapolis, that I was not to tell anyone that we'd even spoken about this, that mm. if my coaches caught wind that Graham was interfering at all, uh, that would be no good for me. My father was uh, involved in, in local hockey, and Graham made a point of, of making it very clear to me that I should never tell my father that Graham was going to be talking to me or helping me in any way, because that would get back to my coaches. And, mm -hmm that would make waves in the local hockey community. And so I'm a, you know, 14 year old kid and, and it all makes perfect sense to me as to why I shouldn't be telling anyone right now. I'm, I'm not so egomaniacal to believe that I'm the only one Graham was, was trying to get at at this time. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate thing for me was that I went and apologized to Graham and opened the door for him to have access to me. And once Graham had an opening to talk to me, that was all Graham needed to, to, to work his skills in terms of trying to get to me. I didn't recognize it as grooming when it was happening, but when I look back on it as an adult, I can see that every everything, anything he ever told me, whether I have no idea whether it was true or not, whether he'd been following me or whether he was following me or whether he had an interest in me or whether he thought I was capable of playing professionally, I have no idea whether any of it was true. Mm -hmm. But to the boy I was back then, it all made perfect sense. What does that grooming look like? Uh, I guess it's maybe hard to recognize as it's happening, but in, in identifying things later that seem to be picking away at any kind of barriers that might have been between the two of you so that he could see you as a target and and, um, and use you as a target. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because obviously everything he did was grooming me. And, and so the, from the outside, when you look back at it, no adult should be dealing one-on-one -on -one with a 14, 15-year-old boy at all, you know, without the parents involved, the parents knowing about it, and, and, and someone else should be there. So right right from the get-go, everything was offside. But how did he go about doing it? Well, it, it's not as if we got together uh, the first time back in Winnipeg and all of a sudden there was a sexual assault. Th this took months and months of Graham sitting down and talking to me about what I wanted in life. Uh, what my relationship with my father and mother and brother and sister and friends and teammates, he, he explored everything. And he would ask, not in a demanding way, but in a, a way that made me feel like I was being listened to for the first time in my life. And so he positioned himself as a mentor, a caring mentor who was going to ask me things that nobody else would ask me. Mm. That's exactly what he did, except he wasn't going to be a mentor. He was going to be an abuser. Right. When did he, and this is maybe a strange question to ask because I, I think 
cross the line from the very beginning, but when did he when did he cross the line and uh, go from being this groomer to being an abuser? Well, what we started to do was Graham was never my hockey coach, but so he was positioning himself as a as like you say a goalie whisperer, a, a mentor. He he started uh, me on uh, dryland training uh, exercises, workouts where we would you know, either in his room or in a field behind the, the house he was at or uh, a field close to his apartment, uh, we would ups and downs and push-ups and sit-ups and uh, movements where my, my knees were bent in a crouch position like a goaltender would. And we would, uh, we would go through exercise after exercise until I was on the point of agony. And then finally, you know, several months into these workouts, Graham gives me his theory about how a hockey player thinks with his head and it, it was he back then because you know women's hockey was mm. was its, its infancy but mm -hmm. how a hockey player thinks with his head and then the power from the, the center of the body the core of the body has to be transferred down through the legs and the legs have to link up with the feet and the feet are in skates and the skates have each have two very fine edges on them and so the, the, the feet are, are integral to a hockey player's ability to perform. You have to have strong feet that mm -hmm. will provide balance and force at the same time. Can I, can I look at your feet? He didn't demand to look at my feet. He asked to look at my feet after one of our workouts. And I thought this all, again, made perfect sense. And, and he took a look at his feet, and he liked what he saw. And, and you know, foot massages started to become a, a, a post-workout routine. Uh, and and so in, in that aspect, he broke down the physical barrier mm -hmm. in a way that made intellectual sense to me. And and again, this was all making everything that Graham did in in terms of conversation, uh, training, uh, a theoretical uh, approaches to the game. It all made sense to me. Is there a sort of an an, an understood chronology of in cases of sexual abuse, what happens first between? isolating somebody and then breaking physical barrier is there a progression that can be looked at in the abstract i don't know that that it can and 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 one of the reasons it took me so long to to come forward and and a go to the police uh and and b write a book is that what happened to me was very different than what happened to sheldon kennedy in sheldon's telling of his story mm -hmm. and and so graham was clearly targeting different subjects differently depending upon what they presented to him. Hmm. I, I think, first off, the notion that we have of stranger danger, though, though it certainly exists, and it's wise for children to be cognizant of, of the risks out there, that what happened to us isn't that, right? There is the notion of having to break down a subject and find vulnerability. It's not usually just a one-off. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, Graham's other victims, some of Graham's other victims who have come forward and, and, and told their stories, Graham was, was very quickly on them physically because Graham had the power of, of, of geography, for lack of a better word. Mm. Uh, some of the other kids were living with Graham and they had no way out. And so mm. Graham was able to act far more quickly than he was on me. I've been thinking a good deal about our understanding of what it means to be a man and what we tell ourselves it means to be a man. And in this moment, you're you're 14 years old. You're still trying to figure all this out. I mean, I, I can remember at 14, I think my conceptions of, of what it means to be a man are much different. How did that affect you then to be uh, still f kind of figuring out your own roadmap 
and now uh, a target of abuse. Oh, it was horrible because, as, as you say, you know, a, a, a teenager, and, and, and let's be blunt about this, it, it's not as if my body wasn't responding to what Graham eventually moved on to do to me. Mm-hmm. And then Graham quickly positioned me as gay. And he opened up about his homosexuality, and he the mantra was always people like us have to stick together. Right. And that if my my secret ever got out, uh, my my hopes and dreams would be over. No hockey program in the U.S. college system would ever want anything to do with me. Uh, my dreams of playing college hockey would be oh all of that type of stuff. And and so I'm a teenage boy. I think that I'm heterosexual, I'm lusting after girls in school, mm-hmm. but I've got this undeniable physical reaction to this hobbit of a man, and I, I, I'm I not sexually active with young girls at this time, mm-hmm. and so the only real physical evidence I have in front of me is that I'm gay, and yeah, it screws you up. And again, this is back in, in now we're in the early 80s, this this is decades before Seinfeld and and uh, you know not that there's anything wrong with that and, yeah. and a greater understanding that you know however you're wired you're wired. I I had a disconnect between who I thought I was and who Graham was telling me I was and and so that was bad enough. The the additional layer was that homosexuality was bad. So I was a bad person in my mind because you know gay people were bad. Mm-hmm. And and I, that that's a burden I have to carry w- with me for the rest of my life for thinking that that's the way I was brought up. But but the, problematic too is you think you're something and you're being told you're not. And so that that vast sea of uncertainty it, it, it's damaging to your psyche. Yeah. Uh, you didn't tell parents. You didn't tell friends anything uh, as as this was going on. Oh no, no. The, the the way Graham worked on me for months was that he effectively became my father figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had me, and he, he didn't need to push me very hard. Uh, he had me thinking that my, my father was not out in my best interests, that Graham was the only one who cared about me, my coaches didn't care about me, my friends didn't care about me. And so by the time Graham finally did something to me, I needed someone to run to desperately. But the right. only person in my life I wanted to run to was Graham. Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me most, you write about this happening, but because you couldn't confront Graham about it then, you know, because he's the only one that you've got to run to, you, you take it out on yourself. The, the, the the shame, the frustrations you must be feeling. Well, absolutely. I mean, right, right from the the get go. I mean, I can, I could mentally understand how Graham took a foot massage too far and did something that I didn't want. Yeah. How I felt trapped in the moment and didn't react and stop him. And so the next time, you know, I'm going to tell Graham, the next time I'm going to see Graham, I've, I've made up my mind that, you know, that I, I have no problem telling Graham, look, you know, what happened last time can't happen again. It, it, I'm, I'm not who you think I am. I'm, I'm not, I don't want this. Mm-hmm. And yet it happened again. And then it happened again and it happened again. And I'm left thinking, well, you know, Who's? I'm, I'm looking down on my shoes. Whose feet are these? Why are you going back to him? Mm-hmm. You can't stop this. You must want this to happen. You are everything he's saying you are. And so my sense of self, you know, fell away. What did that look like? Uh, taking it out on yourself. Um, the the kinds of ways that you would you were processing uh, trauma. 
I hated myself. And so anything that I was doing that signaled to the outside world as, as being success, I felt instantly like a fraud because I knew who I really was. And, and the real me was the guy going back to Graham. And so I took aggressive steps to, to destroy myself. I, I, <laughs> I started hurting myself physically. I stopped working out. I, I started carving and cutting. I started abusing substances. I stopped going to class and school. And the problem for me was I had been so successful that, that people chalked this up to normal teenage rebellion because even when I was doing all of this, I was still getting A's in school as a, as a AAA hockey player. I was still performing at a high level, though not maybe the star that I was before. I was still you know, making the teams and, and performing at, at, a, at a high level. But there are two scoreboards in life, right? There's the scoreboard the outside world sees and there's the scoreboard inside your head. And, and you, you know inside your head what's, what's going on. Mm. And, and it, it, was, it was ugly. And the scoreboard in your head is telling you, I'm a fraud. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I was doing whatever I could to get the outside world to see me as a fraud and, and it wasn't working. Mm. And so I would do something worse and worse and worse. I'd go to school less and less and I'd be more disruptive in school. And I would, you know, carve and cut myself more and, and you know, drink more. and it, it was just a mess. Maybe the most haunting line for me in the book, and, and I think you're getting to, a, to that in what you're talking about, it was this one. Uh, there are lots of ways to kill yourself without having to die. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about the, the mind frame that you were in? Uh, maybe the questions that were kind of, you were wrestling with at the time or the, the thoughts that you were feeling. Well, I didn't know who I was anymore, and the the me I thought I was was dead, you know, figuratively. Mm. I, uh, I I guess that the best way for for me to to sort of try to sum up without you know I I, I go on in, in the book at length about it, and and uh, what I say in the in the book obviously is going to be far more fulsome than what I'm going to say here. the 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 best way I can describe it is. When there's a disconnect between who you think you are and who you think you should be and the reality you find yourself in, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to fight and make yourself the person you think you are or you're going to give in. And I gave in. Hmm. And, and that is a sad and lonely place to be because you know, I knew I was giving in. I knew I wasn't strong enough to fight Graham. I knew that no matter what, I was going to do no matter how many times I was going to tell me that these were my feet, I was going to go back to him. And and so knowing you're going to lose takes all the fun out of playing the game, for, for lack of a better image. Hmm. And you're stuck in the game and you got to put the gear on and you got to show up and it just sucks. And you don't want to get out of bed and you just want to die. How long did the abuse carry on for? Well... Pretty much until I went away to Princeton. And, and again, this is where the telling of my story is gross because I, I, can, I can say that I did all of these bad things to trash my life. And yet at the same time, here I am going away to Princeton University. Uh, anyone in, in their right mind would think that I'm an unbelievably successful person getting to go away to Princeton University. Right. But I, I knew the real me underneath. And 
I thought I had escaped when I went away to Princeton. I'm 18 years old. I'm getting on a plane and I'm going away and I'm going to live this dream of being the scholar athlete I always wanted to be. But the problem was Graham knew that that had been my goal. And so Graham had positioned himself as the person who had delivered it to me, that I never could have done it without him, that he had been instrumental in helping me uh, with uh, meeting people con connected with the university and and whatever. It was only after I got to Princeton that I found out I'd, I'd been awarded an academic award that uh, had nothing to do with uh, with Graham. Mm -hmm. uh, and but my my problem is that my dream was inextricably linked to to Graham. And and to 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 put a a pin in this, I saw my biggest success as my biggest failure because to me, I'd sold my soul to get to Princeton. Mm. You know, that to me goes back to that thinking about how much we're bound by our past. You you go to Princeton and finally are able to get away from, from Graham, get away from uh, the abuse they've been going through, a fresh start, and yet it, it, it kind of comes right along with you. Uh, so what did it look like at Princeton then, the challenges that you started to face then? Let me circle back a bit to the expression bound by our past. I guess I think that's right. And as I'm I'm going through this, I'm certainly bound by my past to the extent that my experience with Graham is far more than simply the sexual abuse. And that's the problem with sexual abuse is that it's far more than the physical act of the abuse because it leaves the mental carnage behind. Hmm. I, I guess at 54, looking back on it, rather than, than look at it as I'm bound by my past for the rest of my life, mm -hmm. I'm certainly required to live with the consequences of what happened coming out of the abuse. I view life more as a tapestry, whereas what happened in the past is there. And to the extent that it has been written, it is, it is on that tapestry. Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't mean that going forward, the past has to dictate the future, but it's certainly a part of the tapestry of my life, and it will certainly influence what goes forward. But but you're absolutely right to the extent that I'm at Princeton, and the abuse is still certainly having dramatic effects on me because what I'm realizing is I'm never going to be able to run away from Graham. Mm -hmm. I'm in a physically different place, and yet he is there in my mind every step of the way. Mm. Part of the, this going to Princeton is playing hockey, and yet that becomes uh, another place for you to strike out again and say, oh, you're, you're going to put me on the hockey team? Well, I'll show you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't deserve this. Well, uh, it, yeah. it, exactly. To the, to the point of wearing improper equipment and you know, stuff that is literally a decade old and not protecting me. And I viewed hockey practice as a type of penance where I went out to get hurt and... and mm bruised and battered and it, it, classic self-destruction. And the problem, again, was that uh, Bruce Delventhal, the assistant coach at Princeton at the time, who had uh, been in charge of recruiting, A, bore a striking resemblance physically to Graham, and B, was so closely tied into the stories that Graham was telling me about how I'd been introduced to people at the Princeton hockey team. In my mind, it only made sense that he, he knew everything about me. Right. So you thought that he uh, he already knew that uh, yep. you had been targeted by Graham and and he was in on on the whole thing. And I didn't want to be you know I, I didn't want to be on the I wanted to be on the ice I wanted to succeed and and whatever but I knew that I was a fraud so I had to tear myself down and so I wanted to be there but I didn't want to be there and I was half hearted and then I would try hard and 
it went back and forth. And the, the, the funny thing was I didn't make the team my freshman year, but I practiced with the, the varsity team all, all through my freshman year. Uh, I had the junior varsity dressing room to myself all year while practicing with the varsity team. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the manager of the hockey team, uh, who I had dinner with just this, this past summer, we, we were going over the, the, the memories of this. The, the powers that be in the Princeton hockey program, the coach, the assistant coach, the managers, everyone, they were grooming me to be the starting goalie my second year, and they thought this was wonderful how they, you know, given me my own. There was a universal gym in, in the, the, the junior varsity dressing room that I had to myself to work yeah. out all year, and there was no room. In the, they, they viewed this as a wonderful thing for me, and all I could see was that they were isolating me, that they knew my story, they knew who I was. Everything that Graham had said about me and not wanting people not wanting to be associated with me was true. What, what better indicator did I have of it that they had to give me my own room away from the rest? Hmm. All of that type of stuff. And the reality was, you know, they only had so many lockers in the in the varsity room for the guys on the varsity team, and and yet they wanted me, they wanted me there, yeah. you know. So so self doubt, self loathing, self destruction continuing while you're at Princeton, all the way through. And I had just enough natural talent to get myself through, in spite of my efforts to destroy myself. Is there a moment that kind of encapsulates? that time period at Princeton of just the the kinds of things you're doing to self-sabotage or of what you thought of yourself at the time? Well, I guess at the, by, by the end, I was at a point where I didn't really care if anyone knew that I was a mess. I wasn't in any way strong enough to come forward with my story of the abuse, but I was also done hiding my attempts to destroy myself. I mean, anyone who took a look at me in my life in a close way would have known that there was something wrong. But the reality is we, we care a lot about ourselves and, and not a lot of other people care a lot about us anyway, not in a bad way, but just in a, we're so focused on our own existence that we lose sight of the fact that everyone is is focused on their own existence and we what we think is important to other people really isn't. And so n- no one was really taking a close look at me. So what you try to do when you're trying to self-destruct is you put the self-destruction right in front of other people's faces, like trashing yourself in the hockey program or whatever. Yeah. So getting close to graduation, I uh, I was abusing substances and I, I one night decided I wasn't going to hide it from my roommates anymore and, and just went on and on and on and on to the point where I was ready to take my own life. I put some running clothes on and went out the door and wanted to run to the point of, of you know, giving myself a heart attack and I, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. And it was a lovely, lovely morning and the, the scene was, was it was magical in, in terms of the, the physical grandiosity in which I, I found myself, but I, I just finally slowed down. I knew I was never going to be able to literally and figuratively run away from the pain and just fell asleep under a tree in front of a magnificent uh, dorm or magnificent uh, uh, college and uh, and uh, was awakened several hours later by a gardener. And in this in this beautiful morning, are you thinking, I hate this? <laughs> like, I, here I am. Well, this, this, is, this is the thing. I loved it. I loved uh, Princeton so much. And yet I didn't believe I was worthy of it and I didn't believe I belonged there and I believe the only reason I was there was because of Graham and I was a fraud. And so it, it was truly back and forth, a, a true yin and yang. 
So being able to accept the good things that were happening in your life was, was a difficulty. A difficulty is an understatement. Mm -hmm. How had things changed by the time you started at the University of Toronto? Well, law school was, was different. The, the whole thing about law school was different. At Princeton, I had, call, I had roommates, and I, I had for a time sports, and I had a, a job on campus, and, and it was a, a much more integrated existence. At the University of Toronto, I was in law school, but I was living on my own in a, a room in a boarding house, and I had nothing to really motivate me to, to put on a mask and, and participate. So I would, for weeks, just stay in my room and not go to class and you know do... do whatever I, I needed to do to numb the pain. And in Toronto, being a, an accommodating city, to be able to do that kind of thing, if you're looking to self-destruct. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing about people who want to destroy themselves, or, or uh, you know, as, as I say in the book, there are a lot of ways to kill yourself without killing yourself. There are a lot of ways to destroy yourself. And hmm. if you, you, you can get good at it, right? You can be creative. And and what, what I've found over time is that the best way to kill yourself without killing yourself is to put on weight hmm. because it is amazing the extent to which people will go to lengths to avoid looking at you and, and dealing with you as they would a, a normal-sized person. I have been uh, a fit college athlete. I have, you know, you know, done a triathlon, road races, all of that type of stuff. And I've also experienced life as a morbidly obese person. And there is nothing as scary as living life as a morbidly obese person. Mm. What's the scary part about it? No one, you truly are dead amongst us. Mm. Nobody wants to deal with you. People read in, into uh, into you uh, character flaws that that aren't there. Uh, it, it's 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 just a you're a part of society, but you're not. And so, it is a fantastic way to show the world that you're a failure. Right. You, you write about this in the book that uh, you know a person dealing with an addiction who's on the path to recovery on that first day of recovery they they present to the world as a as a regular person. But a person oh, yeah. who is morbidly obese on the path to feeling better still presents as a morbidly obese person. And, and, and that's it, right? Because we can have whatever's going on inside our heads going on inside our heads, but we can put masks on and try to play the game within society. And I was doing that when I was a, a teen and I was doing that at Princeton. But you, you, can't, you can't hide obesity. You, you just can't. It presents whether or not you're making strides within your head or whether you still want to be in a dark place. And so one of the problems with recovery, uh, having put on weight, is that the mirror truly is your enemy. And you, with the mental health issues that go along with, with what I've experienced, you withdraw from society, you withdraw from your friends, you put up barriers, you, you start living within your dark thoughts inside your head, and your internal reality becomes your physical reality. Your, your life no longer exists in, 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 in dealing with the people who used to be a part of your life. Hmm. And so you start getting better, and you go to therapy, and you want to start reintegrating yourself into the world. The problem is, 
you don't look any different than you did when you were in the midst of trashing yourself and trying to kill yourself and by putting on all the weight and, and withdrawing from society. And there's a, a normal human reaction to never want to put anything but your best foot forward. And so mm. imagine having had friends you want to meet again and you want to start interacting with again. You want to put a, a good, you want to make a good first impression, for lack of a better word, because mm. you know in your heart of hearts that people judge other people based upon the way that they look. And, and the people, you, you've seen firsthand how people look at morbidly obese people differently than, than the rest. Mm. So you want desperately to re-engage and reconnect and take your life back, yet you know in your heart of hearts you can't because you know the reaction you're going to get. Even and, and I convinced myself and, and others I've talked to about this have convinced themselves, we know that everyone wants the best for us and we know that, that, that people want to help and we know that people are, are trying to facilitate our reintegration and help with the mental health issues. Yeah. Our mental health issues are such that we we know that, but we don't live that reality. Yeah. 1997, Sheldon Kennedy comes forward. NHL player used to play under Graham James for the Swift Current Broncos. And and in this moment, you find out you're not the only one. And maybe worse, that uh, you weren't the last one, that it happened to others after you. How did that hit you? I'd always assumed that I wasn't the only one. I I had and, and still have a uh, good reason to believe that uh, Graham was abusing at least one other when he was abusing me, mm-hmm. uh, but nothing concrete in in terms of an ability to know. So when I hear that Graham, when I hear that Sheldon has come forward, I I know that that there are more, and uh, I know that Sheldon came after me. And so a, a couple of things. First, I had a great job and was doing great things, and I was <sighs> in the midst of a. a flying around the world for can west global at the time canada's largest broadcaster and and just a phenomenally fun interesting job and and my past pops up right right before my very eyes Mm -hmm. i wasn't strong enough to come forward then but even worse i blame myself for what had happened to sheldon because it had come after me and here i am i i had been at the time a, a giant of a teenager more far more powerful than graham could have physically stopped him uh, even even easier would have been just to, to tell someone at school or, or gone to the police or someone in hockey and and Graham would have been stopped in his tracks way back then. Mm-hmm. So I, I blamed everything that happened after me uh, on on me. And what does that do to to a person? What did that do to you to to shoulder that blame? It made me want to take my life again, right? Because it, instantly the the fraud I am comes back. Here's evidence that someone has someone's life has been destroyed because of my inability to act. It's no longer simply about me and, and the destruction of my own life. My, my inability to be me has now tangibly hurt another person. Hmm. When did you finally tell someone your story? I I got to the point where I, I had spent a night on a bridge. Uh, this is, uh, I want to get the timeline straight. So Sheldon came for 96, 97. It's it's not for another decade plus. I go on, I, I pull it together, I get married, have my daughter, uh, and uh, but I this the self sabotaging just continues, and the cycles get worse and worse and worse and worse to a point where I'm just tired of it. And uh, I uh, I got to the point where I I sat on a bridge and and looked looked the other other side in the face and. 
I climbed down. I didn't take my own life. But uh, in my mind, I was a failed suicidist. Again, another failure. Yet another failure in my, my string of self-sabotaging failures. Right. But, but I did uh, go into therapy, and, and I, 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 uh, I, I uh, decided that I was either going to die or I was going to live, and so I was going to give life a shot. You write about recovery in this book, and oftentimes it can feel like one step forward, then two steps backwards. What what does recovery look like in your case? How did it start to take shape? Well, I, th- I think just confronting the fact that this had happened was was the big first step. And so recovery involved talking to a therapist who could guide me through the process of understanding how I had been groomed and how what had happened happened and why it had happened. And I, I guess it was... Recovery was a process of letting a third party or third parties in to try to right my, right size my my basket of, of thoughts, for lack of a better image. I needed help working through why it happened to me. And the fascinating thing about recovery is that I can sit here today and talk to you, and I still don't understand why it happened to me. I still I can say all the the right things. I can pretend that I understand how grooming happens. Mm-hmm. I can describe everything that Graham did and how he was out to get me from the get-go. But when push comes to shove, I can say all the right things, but I still don't necessarily live them. But recovery involved reaching out for help. And as you say, it's one step forward, two steps back, because it's not as if someone tells you something and you go, aha, a light bulb goes off and you're instantly better. You're constantly, I was constantly forced to go back and think through what happened. And in that process, you go back to some very bad times, some dark times. And so those don't, that process doesn't bring back great memories and living with bad memories can be difficult, but you have to confront it to get through it. Hmm. You paint this this uh, fantastic image in the book and, and kind of a funny one too, being a Princeton graduate, a lawyer, an international business executive, and then celebrating the fact that you're using soap and shampoo and, and dumping the garbage. Oh, abs- absolutely. I, I was virtually incapacitated, uh, isolated in my own house, fully withdrawn from social contacts of, of all types, unable to, to go to work and celebrating being able to wash myself and it's incredibly humiliating and yet that was success because success was a day where you didn't get out of the bedroom and and do that and and it's almost akin to a situation where you're in a car accident and you can't move your limbs and you have to learn how to walk again Mm -hmm. The mind is a part of your body, no different from broken or incapacitated limbs. If your mind goes and you're, you're put in places where your mind isn't going to operate, you have to rethink how you're going to live again. Hmm. And that's, that was recovery. Here you are, a guy who, you know, things uh, seem to have come pretty easily. You know, a, a guy who can pick up a sport and become... Uh, one of the best at it, a guy who uh, is advanced ahead in grades, to be able to get to a place where you're able to accept help, that that it's going to take more than just you to get through what you're going through. What was that like? It's interesting because I think that's one of the, 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 the facets of my recovery that 
is problematic because things came to me so easily as a child it's it's not as if i had a, a basket of experience fighting for things that i wanted now mm. fortunately i i wasn't one of those kids who who had everything come to him easily and didn't have a work ethic. I always had a work ethic, but I didn't have any experience with things going wrong. And so when I started making things go wrong, they really went wrong. <laughs> you know? And, and uh, uh, fortunately, I, I've had the, the work ethic to fight through in my recovery, but it's it's so humbling to need to reach out for help. and And that's why the abuse was able to happen in the first place because to say when you're a teenager that you need help is virtually impossible because teens know everything right and, and right. teens are supposed to know everything and, and that's one of the things that an abuser can hold over a teen is that the teen likely isn't going to go to help because the teen doesn't want to appear stupid or, or mm -hmm. dumb or how did this happen or embarrassed or whatever the same the same rule applies when, when you're reaching out for help as an adult because I was literally looking for help as to how to get out of bed. And I was having to admit in therapy that these things that I thought never should have happened to me happened to me. Mm -hmm. And the therapist can say any number of times, oh, well, here's why it happened. And of course it could happen. And you're seeing this from the perspective of an adult, not a teen. And how could a teen ever fight back? I, I get all of that. I understand all of that. Mm -hmm. it, still doesn't it still doesn't make sense. It's still humbling. It's frustrating. And it's scary. Reaching out for help is scary. Now, coming out the other end, I can say that reaching out for help is the best thing I've ever done, and I encourage anyone who needs help to get it, but I, I completely understand how scary it is to ask for help, to admit that you need help. Hmm. Let's talk about closure. Uh, I think closure in this case would seem to be especially hard to come by, particularly when you think about the fact that his, his plea effectively erased your chance of having that day in court, of having him admit to uh, the things that he'd done to you. How have you found closure? And can you find closure? Haven't. And I don't think I ever will. And that's why the image of the tapestry, uh, I think, is so important. It's it's always going to be there, this 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 thing I dealt with. And you know, I'll talk around it and use words like thing or stuff or whatever. And and uh, you can chastise me for not having a larger vocabulary, but I like to distance myself from it. This, this, this stuff that happened is always going to be there. And to think that I'm ever going to move on with closure is a bit of a fallacy. You know, our, 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 I almost said our justice system, but we don't have a justice system. Our legal system didn't deal with Graham properly, and it, it's incapable of dealing with it. And you, what I have learned is that to, to think that I'm ever going to get closure from a third party is is an irrational conquest because mm. rational quest because the uh, what what has to happen is to be able to live a life and to live a life is to live a life without dark thoughts in your head and, and to, to to make peace with what's happened I guess is the way I describe it rather than closure it's always going to be there can I make peace with what's happened kind of sorta mm. uh, uh, my goal is, isn't necessarily now to focus on closure or fully making peace with things. My goal is to make it so that it doesn't shut me down on a go-forward basis. I know that it's always going to be there. I know that I'm always going to have nightmares at some time. You can never control what goes on in your mind when, when you're, you're, you go to sleep. So I, I know I'm going to have to deal with it one way or another. 
my, my goal now is just to try to minimize its impact on me on a go-forward basis. You're a coach now yourself. What do you think about when you see these young lives in front of you? How much of what you went through stays with you when, when you see um, the, the potential of, of kids that you're coaching? Well, when, when I'm around young guys or young girls playing hockey or sports or, or whatever, I'm taken back to a time before Graham. I'm taking I'm taken back to the me who I was before this all happened. And I I just see so much good and majesty in kids with smiles on their faces doing things and dreaming. And we all know that there are monsters out there and we all know that bad things are going to happen and we all know that life comes fast. But it is it is so soul enriching to see unbridled joy that, that kids bring to sport and game and, and all aspects of their lives. And I, I guess on a go forward basis, what I hope is that, that we can all recognize a, a couple of things. First, that we have an obligation to ensure that things like Graham don't happen. Well, we're never going to prevent child sexual abuse from happening. But that doesn't mean we can't do whatever we can to prevent child sexual abuse from happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I guess the the second thing is that we should, to the best extent possible, understand what it means when someone takes away that unbridled joy that a child has. Our legal system doesn't deal with it adequately. Our legal system doesn't treat it like the murder or attempted murder of the soul that it truly is. And our, our legal system, at least in Canada, doesn't punish people like Graham nearly severely enough. Mm. Uh, Greg, is there anything else I, I have yet to ask you that uh, you feel is, is worth adding? I, I guess if my story means anything, it's that no matter how bad things get, there's a reason to keep going because you can come out the other side. And secondly, before we judge other people, understand that everyone has a story and and yeah I've got a story that involves a high-profile predator but you don't have to have been sexually abused by a high-profile predator to have a story and so interestingly I like to think that the hell I've gone through has given me a, a different perspective on judging others and trying to step into other shoes before passing judgment on them because you never know what someone is struggling with and so when we see someone struggling and especially children who, who may be in a situation like this don't ask what's wrong with that person or that child mm. ask what's happening to that person or that's child and the more we look at the world that way what's happening to somebody who's acting in a, in a certain way rather than what's wrong with that person I, I think the world would be a better place greg thank you for sharing your story i appreciate it martin thanks very much for talking to me That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you got something out of that conversation. Those words, there's a reason to keep going. Stick with me. Greg was right, by the way. I was wrong. It was 96, not 97, when Sheldon Kennedy came forward. If you want to read more of Greg's story, his book is out now. It's called I Am Nobody. I went through it in probably three sittings. And if you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and most of all, Pass it on to someone else you think might like it. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. (laughs) 